Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. It's a common saying that wealth in families is built and lost in three generations. However, this shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves phenomenon is on the minds of most wealthy families. There's a constant demand for advice from families of wealth on how to raise productive and kind children. But there's also a sentiment that the education and preparation of wealthy kids solely stays within the realm of money discussions, or that the interactions should only happen when older. That may not be the case. Jeff Savlov is here to talk about the benefits of having these discussions. Jeff is the founder of Blum and Savlov LLP. He consults with business families, legacy wealth families, and the advisors who serve them. He brings more than 30 years of unique experience in sales and marketing, business ownership, including business succession within his own family, and family dynamics and psychological training. We will get into what he sees as the benefits of deep early involvement with kids and the establishment of a productive culture to help kids become more productive, thoughtful, and community-oriented. Welcome aboard, Jeff. Thanks for having me. This is opportune because I think we're all sort of dealing with clients who are trying to make sense of volatility, trying to make sense of long-term planning, and trying to figure out how to impart really the necessary skills to their kids in the next generation so that they're protected and or ready for challenges. With that in mind, tell us a little bit about your background. So I grew up in a commercial printing business. My family had a family business uh, in New York City, and I was involved in small ways from middle school through high school where it got more serious, and then college got even more serious. When I started spending more time there, I realized that dad was hard to work with. He would take out his frustrations on me because I was family and it was safe and he didn't couldn't take it out on the, the people he was frustrated with, the employees, and it got old pretty quick. Honestly, I found a family therapist that worked with parents and kids in business together as a specialty. And we worked with this person, my dad and I, around what was going on. And eventually my mom and sisters got involved. And it was a real transformative experience for me and our family. And ultimately, it led me to realize that I wanted to see what I could accomplish in the world separate from the business my family had started. And also that I wasn't going to have much of a relationship, not a quality one with my dad if we stayed working together. So there wasn't a lot of dra- drama. My parents supported it. I went into the corporate world, sales and marketing. I worked in consumer products, technology. I had a really good run at a young age, but that experience with the family therapist really stayed with me. So I went back, totally changed careers, went back to grad school, studied family and group dynamics, got trained at a, I went to an analytic institute and got trained and certified as a psychoanalyst. So a lot of expertise in how do families work and communicate and how to facilitate family conversations and and do therapy with families. And the psychoanalytic work was really about how understanding the individual mind. I started a practice as as a psychotherapist, a talk therapist, almost 30 years ago. And just by coincidence, some of my clients had businesses and and inherited wealth. And I saw that there was a need for something that was different than a sort of a psychologist or talk therapist, but it was also not being covered, this need by accountants or attorneys or wealth managers. It was sort of in the middle where family dynamics and emotion and relationships meets having a business, working together across generations, developing 
leadership, raising kids in the context of wealth or a, or a successful business. And I started consulting in that realm. And 30 years later, that's where I spend most of my time. Standard operating procedure for most people is to hear shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. The first generation makes it. The second one sort of enjoys it, goes in a different direction, but is not really creating the wealth that the first generation created it. And then the third generation ends up uh, behind the eight ball, used to spending, used to a higher lifestyle, used to less of work ethic maybe that helped generate the wealth in the first place. And that's sort of where people sort of think about things. The standard procedure, at least I've seen it, is to try to educate that second and third generation, maybe after the high school years, maybe once they've gotten to college or beyond, you take a different tact. What is your thinking behind that? Have I got the state of the union right? And then and then where do you differ from that? That is typical. It, it does exist that way. First generation makes it. Second generation grows up watching the first, the parents work really hard. But then the next generation after that sees the success and they think it's always been there. So unless you build something in for them, which is what I'm all about, how do you build in for the second and especially the third generation things to help them appreciate the connection between work and life and success? If you don't build that, that in, it's not going to be there automatically. So I'm a believer in starting much earlier than college or high school. And I think that's where a lot of the opportunity is. And there's a lot of pushback on that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves saying lately, because it doesn't need to be that way. However, it often does turn out that way. We were on video. I would show you right now a, a picture of my pool after a renovation. The, the pool company that built the pool, the founder when I had the pool built 20 something years ago was still very involved. And the second generation had grown up in it and really understood the business. When I had the renovation done a few years ago, the third generation was heavily involved. They had no work ethic. They never really learned the business. And the picture I would show you was the day after my renovation was complete, the pool was falling apart. Literally, they left after this renovation and the pool was (laughs) falling apart. That's what happened when the third generation did the classic and the family did the classic. We'll just sort of see how it goes. And it worked for the first and second generation. We hope it'll work for the third. And, and they didn't build in the right things. You, know, you get to the point where you've got kids who develop a lot of habits by the time maybe they get to you or get to other advisors. How are you thinking about that in terms of your own practice and what you're doing to try to nip that in the bud or get people prepared earlier or build context around the wealth earlier so that people are making better decisions? The way to think about it is what can you do with kids before they even understand the idea of wealth or money? That's really where the opportunity is. So I work with, I'll call them couples because they're not parents yet. They're not, they're not married sometimes or they're married and they don't even have children and they're in multi-generational family wealth situations. And they're coming to me to say, we heard you have the specialty. How can you help us to think about parenting before we even have kids? This is what we're inheriting, or this is the business we're involved in. This is the family we're in and we don't like some of what we've seen. So that's really, really early. And, and, and I'd say before five years old, there's a lot of opportunity. And people often look at me cross-eyed, like what in the world are you going to do with a two-year-old or a, or a three-year-old? And the truth is that there's a lot you can do. As an example, you know, I recently worked with a couple who made an investment of a couple hundred thousand dollars and it turned into over a hundred million. It was risky. They almost lost it all, but it really worked out for them. And they grew up working class and they reached out to me because they wanted to make sure that, that they didn't have the experience many families do when kids grow up in wealth, which they didn't. And the kids at the time were a newborn, a one and a half year old and a three and a half year old. And when they reached out to me, they said, Jeff, 
we heard you have this reputation. Honestly, we're skeptical. What in the world can we do with a one and a half year old and a three and a half year old and a newborn? And I said, we'll give the newborn a, you know, a few months uh, of, of a reprieve to just enjoy life. But the one and a half and a three year old, half year old, they have some opportunities. I said, tell me about, tell me about your dinner routine. And they proudly told me that most nights the both parents are home for dinner and they cook dinner and the kids are in their open floor plan. You know, right next door is the, you know, right next to the kitchen is the open floor plan that leads to the play area and the TV and the kids are playing and the parents make dinner. And then we all sit down and we eat dinner together. And then when we're done eating, the kids go back and we can see them and talk to them while we clean up and get everything straightened up. And then we go and sit down and play with them. They were very proud and they, they thought they had me. They had everything covered. And the truth is they were doing an awesome job. What was the opportunity? The opportunity is, can your one and a half year old put a napkin next to each plate? Maybe with a little help. Yes, the one and a half year old can probably manage that. I said, could your three and a half year old put a plate at each setting or put a fork on each napkin or maybe a glass of water in front of each plate? And they saw where I was going and they said, yes, we could do those things. And it really is that simple, isn't it? That's what they said to me. Jeff, it really is that simple, isn't it? I said, it is. You can give a a three-year-old the impression that dinner is made, the table is set, the table is cleaned up afterwards magically by parents or other people, or you can include them in a way that says, we expect you to be part of the family. We're all in this together and we're all going to work on things. And there's a hundred different ways that you can add in little things like that in subtle ways. And, and it's not even burdensome. You, you know, you tell me, Fraser, is it easier to get a three-year-old to set the table or put a, a, a plate in the dishwasher or a 17-year-old? <laughs> or, or a 48-year-old. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, sometimes sometimes even I needed reminding. To follow up on that, getting kids involved in the routines of life and having them contribute to family, that makes total sense to me. When does the math start? When do you start thinking about things like concepts, compound interest, investing, saving, spending, those types of things? A lot of people ask me when they should start those concepts, and you know, three is too young to be sure. But when, when do you start integrating that in your curriculum, as it were? Well, you know, even a three-year-old can understand. And look, right now we're so cashless as a society. I think I've had like a couple of you know singles in my wallet and a ten-dollar bill, and it's been there for like a year because really cash is not so common anymore. But in the old days, you had coins and and change and piggy banks, and you could do that with kids. And there's there's still ways to integrate some of that stuff in. You know, good old cash with really young kids, and the ideas of saving some money, spending some money, and helping others with money if that's the family values. And most of the families that reach out to me have a value of giving back in some way. They might have different areas of interest in society, in the world where they want to give back. But sharing, spending, and saving, saving, spending, and sharing are just three concepts that you can actually integrate in pretty early. And then I think in early elementary school to, to, to help them deposit that money in the bank and have a joint bank account and help them to sign on on the web and look at their account and see the idea of interest and how that that works and have them write checks on a joint account with parents. And even in a late elementary school, early middle school, these things can happen. And even parents being on credit cards with kids and letting them really buy things and pay for them with their own money can be done really early. I think kids are capable of a lot more, a lot younger than people realize. And those are the basic concepts that you want to, you want to save your money. You want to wisely spend it on things that make sense and teaching kids about when, what makes sense, what's 
what's frivolous, and maybe when's it okay to spend money on something that's purely fun, when to spend money on something that you really need. Wants and needs conversations are really a big thing that I do with families and really young kids and, and sort of make that distinction of what are the values around saving and spending, and then how do you help others and make an impact in the world with some of that money as well. Let's follow up a little bit on the helping others part. The use of philanthropy and charity and those types of concepts to help draw out some of these lessons is usually in the wealth manager's playbook, front and center. Oftentimes, it's wrapped around a foundation or some other structure that's posited to the senior members of the family. How do you think about that component when talking to kids? It's, it's important to talk to kids about how the world works and all the wonderful things that go on in the world and, and the things that aren't going so well, whether it's you know the fact that some people get really sick, some people don't have enough to eat, some people don't have clean water. Some countries, lots of people die just from mosquitoes and a simple net they can put over their bed at night can save millions of lives. I can go on and on, but you and I both know there's a lot of different things going on in the world and you can talk to young kids about that. So as a personal example, my family is, is Jewish. Jewish, and when the holiday of Hanukkah comes around, it's an eight-night holiday, and the tradition is giving a gift every night. My wife instituted a giving nights and getting nights. Every other night, they get a gift, and they're appreciative for that. But on the alternate nights, we've made, and this is fun. This is not like a torture or a punishment. If you start early enough, it's really a fun thing for kids and the family. On the giving nights, we talk about the problems that are going on in the world and how we want to make a difference. And on the giving nights, we play a, a dreidel game, which is like this little top you spin, which is part of a Jewish tradition of Hanukkah. And who we play that and who we play with peanuts and whoever wins uh, gets to the first night, gets to make the first pick of giving. And we make sure each one of us gets to pick. And so it's really useful to take kids to, uh, I've taken my kids to the soup kitchen that I've been volunteering at for over 12 years. And I've had them, you know, make bag lunches for kids that come into the soup kitchen or just plate up food or, you know, help in various ways and see what goes on there and, and the nature of people's lives that are a lot harder than ours. And same thing if you if you value pets and you can go to the shelter and volunteer. I mean, whatever is going on, the environment. One of my sons was really, he really got this idea of pollution in elementary school. They talked a lot about it and he wanted to do things that helped prevent pollution, clean up the town. So I think that's a way to integrate the money piece in. And it's also important to have kids get their hands into you know, real life situations where they can see what's going on in the world and make an impact directly. At the intersection of philanthropy and wealth and contributing to society, I personally put taxes in that world, which is not ne not necessarily as cut and dried as direct philanthropy. There are things that taxes paid for that people disagree with, but they, you know, sort of at the overarching level are important to contribute to society and build infrastructure and build commonality, et cetera. At what stage do you talk about that? So I'm unusual, although I'm on a mission, as you might have noticed, to really get people to start as, as young as possible. And I've done that. I mean, I have shown my kids in late late elementary school, so fourth, fifth grade, nine, 10 year olds, our taxes. My wife and I, I've shown them our taxes. They see the the numbers of what our business makes, and that can you know look really exciting to especially to a young kid. And then I explain to them, you know, wh which part of the tax return is is the taxes themselves. And I show them, you know, here's a big number that's 
everything. Here's how it gets a lot smaller after you pay taxes. And we have those conversations. And here's the expenses of the business. And here's all the kinds of insurances and things we have to have. If somebody falls coming into our office, driving our cars requires insurance. And really at a young age, kids can absorb this very easily and it makes sense to them. And we do talk about taxes and what is it about and why do you have to pay them is one of the you know earliest questions that came up from my kids. And I said, that's a great question. We live in, in a country, in a society, and the, the way that we get bridges and roads for all the cars to drive on and hospitals nearby that we can get care when we need it, taxes are a large part of that. And, and if you don't like the way the taxes are being spent, there are different parties. And I would, would explain to them, here's how Democrats tend to think. Here's how Republicans tend to think. Aside from even what my personal political views might be, I explain, you know, in as objective a manner as possible, here's some of the choices of political parties and what they think about taxes. And and you really let kids ponder that and understand it. And they're they're really interested. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's just a real positive kind of conversation to have. One of the tactic or a trick or something like that uh, came from a friend of mine who in his paying an allowance to his kids and say he was giving $5 to them, he would take two back and sort of to illustrate the concept that the numbers that you see in public aren't necessarily what your take-home dollars are. And then he was able to sort of backdoor illustrate the concept that those $2 help to maintain different functions within the family. And I always thought that was sort of a useful component. Didn't get into the detail that you're talking about. If we're trying to give uh, tips uh, out, uh, I always thought that was a clever one. Yeah, no, it totally is. And I, I want to just sort of reemphasize and we can go we can go into high school and college and beyond. However, there's so much opportunity in those real early years. If you're thinking about if you want a child who's going to contribute, maybe a child who's going to have a significant trust fund or access to maybe working in a business where there's real potential to be a leader and to, to make significant income, to, to put in place early on the pieces that are going to make a real big impact in terms of giving back and contributing and being part of a family team where everyone's expected to to contribute. I think if you live in a part of the country where there's snow, kids, again, the younger they are, the more fun these things are. The things that teenagers and young adults hate to do, three, four, five-year-olds love to do. So give your kid a little kid-sized shovel when it snows. And even if mom and dad are really doing the bulk of the shoveling and the kids are probably putting more snow back on the driveway than taking it off, just that feeling of we're a family, we're in it together, and these are just things we do. And I remember doing that with our boys and they would mess around and they'd make snow angels. They'd have a snowball fight. And every once in a while, they'd take a little snow off the driveway. And it's kind of, you keep it fun when they're young. But I do remember waking up when we had snow overnight and I woke up to the sound of a shovel shoveling away. And at some point they woke up and didn't ask mom and dad to come out. And they just went out and, and were shoveling. And I look out the window and I see it's already halfway done and both boys are out there. And that's what you want to, you really want to instill that they're a part of things and that they contribute in a way that they want to do the right thing according to the family values as they start to get older. And it's not a fight over it. It's a real pride in being able to contribute in that way. And it's there's so much that can be done in those younger ages that then build and build as you move into middle school and high school. Let's get to the topic of investing as a subject matter, as a way to get kids to think about saving and then investing and at the larger level, sort of building up the asset side of the asset and liability sheet. What is your thought process in terms of getting kids involved in that? 
Yeah, so that's really not my my world. My my specialty is before kids can even understand money, and then a lot about sort of values and character building at the younger ages, and then well into high school. So I don't get involved with the investing side of things with my families. There's a lot of good programs out there. There's a lot of good websites. I'll send them different places for that sort of education. But typically, that's not really the sweet spot of what I'm I'm talking to them about. I'm talking about the the history of the family. One thing that I find is really important is for families to go back as many generations as they can and look at some of the hardships the family has faced and some of the ways that they've overcome hardship and what are the successes been and helping the parents to lay all of this out so that that wealth and the money piece is in the context of a bigger family picture. And there's some really good research to show that when kids understand the history of their family and both the ups and the downs, there are real positive mental health, emotional and developmental benefits for kids that when they understand they're part of a, of a, a larger family system that had made real sacrifices and had real successes before they even came around. I'm not talking about money all that much with the families I'm working with, but it's family stories. It's articulating values. I do a lot of creative exercises that don't even mention money. What are the difference between wants and needs? And I've had eight-year-olds and 21-year-olds within the same family have this conversation about wants and needs. And I've had the eight-year-olds, uh, one time I had the eight-year-old make a case that friends go on the needs list. And the 21-year-olds and even the 50-year-olds in the room were, were of the mind that uh, food, clothing, and shelter are needs and everything else is wants. And this little eight-year-old who the, the family actually almost didn't allow to be part of the, the meeting because they thought he was too young. And I said, please, he's a great age for this. And he single-handedly made the case that friendship is so important to life that it should be considered a need. And what would life be without friends? And this little eight-year-old had everyone sort of teared up and adding friendship to the list of needs as opposed to wants. And that's the kind of interaction that I facilitate. So I could opine a bit on the investment side, but it's really not where I, where I live or even where I focus. It's really much more on values and character because that's the foundation and money comes on top of that in all its various forms. So a lot of times I, I certainly fall in this category, unfortunately, you know, they start saying this is for 1% types and rich folks, but these apply, these ideas apply to poor and working class folks as well, right? Yeah, they pretty much do. And I say that a lot in conversations like this with you is that a lot of what we're talking about applies to poor folks, working class folks. The difference is if you're poor or working class, reality is going to come calling and there just isn't going to be a safety net. You're going to have to do something. Life is going to force it. The tricky thing is when there is wealth, especially significant wealth, it can be a safety net that actually is a dangerous safety net. Parents' job is not to make life easy on their kids. And wealth can make life easy and, and even too easy. A parent's job as I see it, and I, the research certainly backs this up, it's to make life the right amount of challenging. And so a parent's job, and you can have three different kids that have three different amounts of challenging that are right for them, but each kid should struggle. They should have some hardship. They should fail and then have to come back and try again and then have some successes. But if you're only succeeding with the help of family and the, the, the financial safety net of the family, if you're only succeeding, you're never going to feel like you're accomplishing anything on your own. It seems like life's too easy and you don't really have to try. And if you're always failing, you're going to give up because you feel like I'm not getting anywhere. There's a balance in there. And it's it's really up to parents to make sure that kids are pushed to have some hardship, to fail and come back from failure. And that's where character and resilience, all these wonderful things come from. Money makes it 
it makes it easy to make life too easy for kids. And, and you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I see this a lot. I see I speak to a lot of 90 year olds crying over what they've created. They, the 90-year-olds often, when, especially when they came from poverty, I work with a lot of very wealthy people that came from poverty, and they just didn't want their kids and grandkids to have it so tough. So out of the goodness of their heart, they wanted to avoid their kids and grandkids having that kind of difficult time like they had. What they forget is they make it too easy, and they don't have the kids really try at all. And I've seen some really painful situations with, again, teary crying 90 year olds who realized we made it too easy we didn't we gave them jobs in the business with great salaries and we thought we were doing them a favor but we never had them work and all of our non-family executives see them as a nuisance and and it's embarrassing and they 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 ruin everything they touch and my grandkids this is real example recently and my grandkids uh, we, we gave them all private school. When they turned 17, we got them pretty much any car they could name. We paid for college. Most of them didn't finish college. And, the, and all of them are just sort of sitting around getting no-show paychecks from the company. Again, this guy came from such poverty, he thought this was helping. But it wasn't. And the truth is, poor and working class families, they can't do that. They just don't have the resources. So while so much of what I'm talking about around family history and values are great conversations for, for anyone of any socioeconomic background. There is a special need for families with financial success, especially when it's significant, to think through, how do I make sure that I'm still holding my kids accountable and making them contribute and all of those little things? Is it ever too late? Is there? Have you seen situations that are too far gone where the kids have developed and they there's no room for any sort of education or family meetings or any sort of indoctrination to help them get along that path? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I'm a pretty optimistic guy and I like a challenge. So saying it's too late is not really in my constitution. However, let's be realistic. I've certainly had families where the kids are I'm working with a, with a family now. The kids are in their 30s, and two of the three kids are really just, one's got sort of a no-show job in the family business, and all the non-family executives are really fed up with this kid. It makes their world, their, their lives twice as hard. And there's a daughter who has really not made any money with that, and millions have been poured into it. And so while I wouldn't say it's too late, if the children are willing, even at their 30s or 40s, to be part of a conversation with me and the parents to sort of look at the way that the parents have handled money and the negative effects that it's had on them, if they're willing to be part of that and keep an open mind, something really positive could come out where the kids reorient towards money and life and work, and the family can can come out of this uh, better off. A lot of times in this situation, I'm coaching parents because uh, the children don't want to be part of any of this. And the parents feel like they need to stop just throwing money at the kids and have sort of higher expectations. But it takes time when you, you can't just undo 35, 40 years of handling things a certain way and then expect it to change on a dime. So while I, I wouldn't say it's it, there's a point where it's it's too late, it can be extremely difficult to make the kind of changes parents would like to see. It could be a real challenge. This is great stuff. Jeff, thank you very much for appearing. How do we find you? How does someone who hears this uh, get in touch with you if they want to hear more? Uh, so Jeff Savlov, that's S-A-V-L-O-V. You can Google me and family business or family wealth. You'll find it. My website is www.blumandsavlov.com. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's B-L-U-M-A-N-D. S-A-V-L-O-V dot com at any of one of those ways you can you can find me. 
and that will be in the show notes. Jeff, I appreciate it. Thanks for putting up with me on my away game here. My, uh, I'm recording this from away from my office, so appreciate your patience with it. And thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.